Hello, Jacob Jarvis here. Before we begin, here's a reminder that we're running a listener survey to help us find out exactly what you want from the bunker. There's a link in the show notes. Fill it in for a chance to win a bunker T-shirt. Now, on to bunker gold. More than a year after his departure from the White House, controversy still surrounds the former US president Donald Trump, with the FBI having raided his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida on Monday. In this episode from January 2021, Jude Rogers spoke to Donald Trump's niece, Mary Trump, and author of Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man, to discuss how he became the notorious character we know today. We hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jude Rogers. This podcast is coming to you on Inauguration Day in the US, a day that's often been approached by both political followers and the public with anticipation and high emotion. This year is a little different. After the storming of the Capitol on January the 6th and the second impeachment of a single-term president in the middle of a pandemic where nearly 400,000 people have died in the US, there are much bigger issues at play this year. There also lingers a real terror about what legacy this presidency will leave. One person saw all this coming. Mary Trump has long been a vocal critic of her uncle on Twitter, especially during last year's election campaign and around the chaos that has reigned in the Republican Party after the Biden-Harris win was confirmed in November. Her brilliant book, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man, published last summer, showed in detail how his upbringing helped shape him and warp him how he always failed upwards, was rewarded for his bad behaviour, and the consequences this has had for Trump's celebrity, political office, his country, and the world at large. This July, Mary will publish a second book, The Reckoning, which will examine what she calls America's national trauma, rooted in our history, but dramatically exacerbated by the impact of current events and the Trump administration's corrupt and immoral policies. Hello there, Mary. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Drew. It's great to be here. Firstly, tell us why you continue to be compelled to write about your uncle and inform the world who he really is. Because we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, He made clear last week, which should have been clear all along. And and to be fair, it it was has been clear to a lot of people, certainly not just me, um, that he's a he's dangerous and will continue to be dangerous. But beyond that, uh, he's perfectly not just capable of but happy to incite increasing levels of violence against his own country so i don't there's no reason to think that's going to end after the inauguration now i've spoken to you three times before our interview today now um for the observer newspaper um just before and after the election and early this month just after the storming of the capital and every time we've spoken you've reasserted that this is a man who's only really comfortable with breaking things and that we shouldn't underestimate him tell us what drives that in him it's pretty complicated in some ways but in other ways it's pretty simple let's start with the simple stuff um he's incapable of doing anything creative which uh can be very frustrating on a very deep level he knows that he's not he's never been successful at anything he doesn't have any particular skills uh he has as you mentioned in your introduction failed upward been allowed to fail upward been enabled to fail upward his entire life beyond that though it's it has a lot to do with his upbringing and his uh, developmental history 
this was a boy who wasn't loved partially because his mother due to uh, illness was absent, but also partially due to the fact that she wasn't a particularly nurturing, interested parent anyway. She seemed not to think at all that the boys were her problem. And his other parent was a sociopath. And my grandfather was a despicable human being who didn't, not only didn't understand human love, but had no use for it. And he treated his children as extensions of himself and uh, valued them to the extent they were useful to him. And that was about it. So Donald knew what he had to do, not just to, to get his father's positive attention, but to survive because failure to live up to Fred Trump's expectations essentially got you destroyed. And that's exactly what happened to my dad. You write brilliantly and very upsettingly in your book, actually, about how you treated your father, who died in his early 40s um, after a heart attack due to issues with his alcoholism. You know, about the night your uncle was dying alone in hospital and his brother went to the cinema. Um, you know, there's lots more about this in the book and it's, you know, the detail in it is quite extraordinary. Um, how did he treat you? You know, kind of dismissively, <laughs> we were we were there. You know, and outside of uh, family gatherings at my grandparents' house or holidays, like we didn't do anything separately ever. None, none of none of us. And then when I was an adult, it was pretty much the same thing until he uh, hired me to write his. I think it was his second book uh, in the early nineties, and then I I saw him pretty much every day. But because he's Donald, <laughs> it didn't really change anything because he has this uh, remarkable capacity to be exactly the same person in all circumstances. Like He's the same in terms of his affect and in terms of his accessibility in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with his wives, with his parents, or in front of a crowd of 50,000 people. It's really quite extraordinary and, and unsettling. It's not healthy. And, you know, sexualizing you as a teenager, as you write in the book, and women around him as well, obviously. Yeah, uh, although oddly, <laughs> that's just the way it was. So it didn't change anybody's opinion of him because that's just who Donald always had been, which is an awful thing to say, looking back on it. But, you know, it's amazing what families uh, get inured to. And uh, I guess we could also say it's amazing what countries get inured to. Hmm. Did you have any inkling of where he'd end up when you were growing up? Certainly not um, where he's ended up in the last four years. When I was a kid, you know, I bought into the same myth uh, everybody else bought into. I legitimately thought that Donald was a self-made man who had made all of his own money and was much richer than even my grandfather. You know, just as I bought into the myth that my dad was a, an unaccomplished alcoholic loser. And that's exactly what my grandfather wanted us to believe on both counts. So I was not surprised to see his quote unquote success in real estate, but then you know, as I grew up, I sort of started ca catching on. I think I started catching on when I worked for him writing the book and had absolutely no idea what the man did all day other than talk on the phone, read articles about himself and write obnoxious comments on them. <laughs> so uh, it didn't take too long before I realized that there wasn't a lot 
um, happening. So 2016 comes along, he gets elected. What was your reaction to that? I was heartbroken, uh, which is a feeling I felt way too much in the last four years, five years. I took it really personally, which sounds weird, I know, because it's, you know, nobody knew I existed. I guess it was because I, um, I knew so thoroughly what a horrific mistake it was. And I didn't understand that a lot of people outside of New York didn't know who Donald was. They only knew what they saw on TV. And I just was devastated that he was going to have a chance to do to my country what he and my grandfather had done to my family. So unfortunately, it looks like I was um, accurate in my predictions. And you last spoke to him when he was in the White House, you know, um, April 2017. This was at his sister, your aunt, Marianne's birthday party. What was it like seeing him, you know, in that seat of power, you know, seeing your uncle there, you know, kind of directly? Honestly, uh, the only way I got through that event was to detach from it entirely. I couldn't allow myself really to grapple with, with the fact that he was there because the contrast between the, the elegance and the profound history of the White House and my family's tawdriness and knowing how little he deserved to be there, I think would have made it impossible for me to show up in the way I thought I needed to. Let's fast forward to the last few months, you know, these last few months, which uh, have been relentless in many ways. You know, you've been very vocal on Twitter. You've um, talked about his response or lack of response to the coronavirus pandemic in the US, let alone before we get to the election campaign, the election itself. When it became clear that Biden and Harris had won, you know, did you envisage what would come next? Yeah, uh, obviously nobody could ever know exactly what's going to happen. All I could say was that it's going to get worse. <laughs> um, we had to realize that he was capable of anything and that uh, as soon as he realized that he was running out of options, he was going to tear everything down. Uh, and if he felt like he was going down, he was going to take all of us down with him. And that's, that's exactly what he tried to do. I didn't uh, have a specific picture in my head of his inciting an armed insurrection. But on the other hand, I can't say I, it surprised me either. You know, in some ways, it's almost as if he prefers grievance to success in a way. You know, thinking back to his 2016 win for a moment, you know, he spent a lot of his time in the months immediately after that ranting about Hillary Clinton winning votes fraudulently, which, you know, was a subject we would come to know again in the future. Do you think that's a fair assessment that, you know, he likes to be in these situations where he can rant and rave and attack? On the one hand, a grievance is, has always been a winning strategy uh, for him. And I, as we've seen over the last four years, he's, he's elevated the politics of grievance to an art form. Uh, he's tapped into the rage, I guess, of a certain segment of our population, all of whom are white, 
it's not just that grievance is more appealing to him than success. It's that he knows in a deep way and on a deep level, maybe not even consciously, but he knows that he's never won anything legitimately in his life. He's never been legitimately successful. Any threat to that uh, illusion is going to be countered vehemently by, for example, as you pointed out, claiming that three to four million people voted illegally (laughs) for Hillary Clinton. Uh, Because even though he got the quote unquote win, there was an asterisk next to it. And a lot of people, including me, don't believe at all that he won in 2016. You know, obviously we come to this election where he's still thinks he won. Do you think he thinks he won, actually? One thing we need to remember in, in trying to answer that question is that Donald has been trying for months to steal this election. I'm not suggesting that that's because he was convinced he was going to lose. I don't believe that he was convinced he was going to lose. I'm, I believe that he will do every anything in all circumstances to make sure he wins. And he doesn't care if he wins fairly. He just he believes he deserves to win and no matter what. And if he needs to cheat, lie, and steal or use other people's power, money, and connections, he'll do that. And that's fine. So, you know, we saw it with the pressure campaign on Ukraine's president. And it continued throughout the year, getting much more urgent in the summer when before one vote was cast, he was claiming that if Joe Biden won the election, it will have been rigged. He was undermining people's confidence in mail-in voting in the middle of a pandemic. And he put in charge of the post office a man, uh, Louis DeJoy, whose sole purpose was to destroy the post office so that mail-in voting would not be efficient and could potentially sway the election results because Democrats traditionally vote by mail more often than Republicans. So he tried really hard. So you combine those things with uh, Republican gerrymandering and Republican voter suppression, particularly of voters of color. It's not that that he believes he didn't win. It's that he can't believe that with all he did to steal it, that he wasn't successfully able to steal it. Uh, And over time, which this always happens with Donald. Over time, I think the lie becomes true for him, simply because he cannot wrap his head around the fact that for the very first time in his entire life, he hasn't been able to get out of a situation in which he can uh, somehow spin the loss into a win. And it's, it's driving him crazy. So we've had these repeated patterns of behaviour now for months, years, um, but we're surely now at a stage where this is a clear failure, you know, to, to obviously to people in the Republican Party, not everybody in the Republican Party, but this is a clear failure. Um, he's being branded a loser. How do you think he will deal with that? You know, we know what he thinks about the word loser. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's that's why we can't let our guard down. And we're in this situation because the Republican Party failed so miserably to contain him. 
in general, but especially uh, once the uh, election was called in Joe Biden's favor. They let him go on and on about his accusations of voter fraud and uh, election irregularities, and they allowed him to stir up those feelings of grievance uh, among uh, voters. You know, remember, I I know it seems like it was, uh, I don't know, 14,000 years ago, but it was only less than two weeks ago that um, he incited an armed insurrection against our country. So uh, there's nothing that's happened since then to uh, lower the temperature. Nothing at all. In fact, for him, things have gotten even worse because, as you say, some Republicans, although unbelievably enough, a very small fraction of them, but enough have decided, have made the calculation that it is no longer in their best interest to stay with him, to support him uh, no matter what. And that leaves him increasingly isolated. That leaves him essentially, he's at the point where he has no options anymore. We can't underestimate how that could play out. Um, So my hope is, and it's I don't know how likely it is because our media have also failed us in many ways in the last five years, Um, but that he should go the way of all other people who are out of office uh, and he should become irrelevant. And the only person we should really be talking about is Joe Biden because Donald Trump is unimportant and should not be covered 24 hours a day because he's contributing nothing And uh, between that and the fact that he's looking at um, some serious lawsuits, he's looking at the fact that his banks might start calling in his enormous debts, and he's looking at very, very serious state-level criminal charges, you know, he's probably going to be too busy (laughs) to uh, be causing problems. But, you know, I don't put anything past him. But how does a narcissist like him manage to bring so many rational people under his sway, you know, in his inner circle? As you said, there are so many of the Republican Party still at his side. What is it about him that keeps them there with him? One of the most shocking things to me in the last few years is that there are people on this planet who are weaker than Donald. (laughs) I didn't think that was possible. But, you know, and the other thing that's become obvious is that uh, there are a lot more people with authoritarian personalities than I would have thought. I think part of it is, you know, certainly for people in his inner circle, they always seem to think that they're going to be the exception to the rule. They're going to be the person he stays loyal to no matter what. Given the track record, that's an absurd thing to think. (laughs) It's absolutely absurd. He has no loyalty to anybody. For him, loyalty is another person being loyal to him no matter what he does, no matter how badly he treats them and no no matter how little they get out of it. Uh, But, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, and I know this is also hard to to wrap your head around, but Donald actually is charming. Uh, He has a certain charisma that appeals to a certain type of person. Now, you know, if you met him, you might recognize that and maybe even be charmed by him for, I don't know, five seconds. (laughs) And then you'd realize that he's Donald and there's really nothing admirable or um, charming about him at all. 
But I guess a lot of uh, people don't see that. They they continue to think that he's uh, not just charming, but, you know, by virtue of his position, this actually is true. He He's very powerful. And sadly, that, that combination of things appeals to um, a much broader swath of our population than I ever would have imagined. Let's talk about the second impeachment. Does being impeached for the second time hold any terror for Donald? Does he care about it, do you think? I think he cares about it insofar as it gives him a reason to stoke more violence. I don't think he understands the implications of it. Well, that's assuming there are any. (laughs) But um, it could indeed have serious implications, uh, which he probably... Well, first of all, he... There's no way he thought there would be any consequences to what happened last week, except perhaps that he would succeed in overturning the the election results, Uh, which sounds crazy because it is, but it also happens to be true. What he, I'm sure, doesn't understand is that this impeachment could lead to his being barred from running for public office ever again. I mean, hopefully it leads to much more serious things than that, but we can't underestimate the importance of keeping this man out of American politics. You've said before that things need to happen to address what has gone on in the last month as well, um, that it shouldn't be ignored. It should be looked at closely by the Democrats. You know, everything that's gone on from the storming of the Capitol to the actions of mm-hmm. the Republican Party. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I think that there should be a Truth and Reconciliation Commission set up to look at everything that's happened from the 2016 election on down. Um, But certainly the weeks leading up to, I'd say from, from November 3rd on, you know, this, this uh, insurrection last week was planned. It was coordinated. There was inside help. There is a serious infiltration of our law law enforcement agencies by the, by white supremacists which presents a clear and present danger and an ongoing danger to this country. All of that information needs to be uncovered. The co-conspirators need to be uncovered and uh, indicted and convicted and imprisoned, as do the participants in the insurrection who broke into our capital, some of whom were hell-bent on I'm not kidding. I, I mean, I, I'm, I shouldn't be laughing. It's just, it's so unfathomable that this is actually something that almost happened because they were in the building, having overwhelmed our Capitol Police. There were men wearing tactical gear with zip ties who were there to kidnap and harm and perhaps murder our elected representatives. I mean, it's just horrifying. Uh, all of that needs to be uncovered. The Republicans, hopefully, once they see just how uh, far-reaching this was and how close they all came potentially uh, to being harmed, I hope they join in. I mean, there were Republicans in that building, too, fearing for their lives. So uh, this needs to be a bipartisan effort because if we don't, if we don't, if we don't treat this with the seriousness and severity it deserves, then what's the point? It's, you know, this kind of, we're just setting ourselves up for having this sort of thing happen again. 
Um, so if, if nothing else, it, it presents us with an opportunity once and for all to right these wrongs and tear out the roots of the hatred in this country as far as that's possible. If Inauguration Day passes as peacefully as it can, um, what do you think will happen next to Donald? You know, as I as I alluded to earlier, he's uh, once he no longer has the power and protection of the Oval Office, he's in a lot of trouble. So between the revelations that are going to continue to be made about, you know, his complicity, what happened last week, his children's complicity in what happened last week, all of those other issues, financial, criminal, legal, he's probably going to be too busy, you know, giving depositions and crafting legal defenses uh, to do much else. But in the event that uh, he is has the energy and time, what I am also hoping, though, is that his behavior is a bridge too far and that it's made him toxic. He's been banned from social media. And I think um, New York, New York State is looking at canceling all of its business contracts with uh, the Trump organization. And I'm guessing other states would follow suit. His future is looking very different from what it would have what it would have looked like uh, even two weeks ago. After the election, the base of support for Donald was so um, tight and has been so vengeful towards people who didn't buy into him having lost, him having not um, achieved what he wanted to achieve. Um, and the support network around him has been so tight, even though these revelations have changed the way we thought about him in so many ways. Have you ever felt in danger yourself because of how vocal you've always been about him? One of the things that's been really interesting about this experience for me is uh, how the book has been received by people inclined to uh, agree with me and by people who aren't. I think it's, it's, a, it's a testament to uh, the dark times we're living in that I am shocked. I'm literally shocked and surprised that I have never received a threat. <laughs> um, I fully expected to. I hired round-the-clock security right after the book came out. You know, I was really worried. I, I know, well, first of all, I know how vengeful my family is, and I certainly saw how vengeful Donald's supporters are. And as you've as, as you've mentioned, and as we've all seen, uh, they're even more vengeful than I could have thought this in the last two weeks. I've been trying to figure out what is up with that because whistleblowers in this country have fared very badly in the last four years. They, their reputations have been attacked. They've had to resign. They've been fired. It's been, they've been threatened. They've had to get security. It's been absolutely awful. So what is going on uh, you know, my th my negative comments on Twitter, for example, are basically, uh, I'm a grifter. When are my 15 minutes going to be over? And how dare I not be loyal to my family? <laughs> you know, that's sort of the sum, sum total of it. Uh, so I think in a really weird way, the, the thing I thought was going to make me most vulnerable, which is my relationship to him, is actually the thing that protects me. Even these awful vengeful 
um, anti-American, you know, fascistic people draw the line <laughs> at um, attacking Donald's family, even if, you know, the particular family member is somebody who um, doesn't support him in any way, shape or form and is very vocal about uh, about that. So it's it's pretty fascinating. What do you think his legacy is going to be? I hope uh, his legacy is that he was the worst so-called leader <laughs> in American history, and he should be known as the man in the Oval Office who kidnapped, tortured, and imprisoned children. He should be known as the man who changed America from being a refuge for immigrants in a country of immigrants to being a man who refused to open our doors to the most desperate people on the planet, uh, some of whom were made refugees by situations that the United States helped exacerbate. Uh, he should be known as the man who came very close to destroying the Western Alliance and diminished America's standing in the world to a degree that's unprecedented. And he should be known as the only person in American history who incited an armed insurrection against his own country. If there's any justice at all, he'll also be known as the former occupant of the Oval Office who is going to spend the rest of his life in prison. But we'll have to see if there is, after all, such a thing as justice in America. Just finally, what do you think he wants? Does he want power or status or just to be noticed? Um, you know, as the title of your book refers to, you know, too much and never enough. Can anything be enough for him? No, uh, I, I think the uh, the two things that most matter to him are money and attention. And I think if I had to pick what's most important to him, I'd have to say attention. I think if the cameras ever go away, which I hope they do, Donald ceases to exist. And I mean that quite literally, like as a psychological being, he ceases to exist. That's quite something to think about. And he has been such a part of our lives, you know, over the last, well, four years and the last 20, 25 years, really. <laughs> um, Mary, th um, yeah. thank you so much for joining us in the bunker today. Uh, Jude, I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. There's a new Bunker Daily um, every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, plus the brand new panel show on Tuesdays. So please do subscribe. And if you want to support the show, search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Make a small contribution and you'll get lovely merchandise plus early editions of the podcast and lots more too. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Jude Rogers. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.